Welcome to Everyone a Changemaker, where we interview the world's leading social entrepreneurs on their journey towards creating social impact and systemic change. Tune in and discover innovative solutions for the most pressing challenges that we face today. Brought to you by Ashoka Innovators for the public. So now, welcome to everyone a Changemaker web series. For those who are tuning in today, Sonal Kapoor is an Ashoka fellow since 2020 and the founder of the Han India Foundation based in Delhi. The Han works towards the prevention of girl child abuse. And with what they famously call the heart model since 2010, they've really been doing systemic impact and real social change in this space. So Sonal, I want to welcome you to the show today. If you could just give us a little brief introduction about the work you're doing and how you started on your journey. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. journey started about exactly 12 and a half years back now, way back in 2010. I was a microbiology graduate, had no understanding of social entrepreneurship space or no understanding of how nonprofits work or shouldn't work. And after my microbiology, I wanted to do something in the pharmaceutical sector. Wanted to make enzymes and do something, make vaccines. And then, and then reality really hit. So I think after microbiology, I was one of those very few people in my college who then didn't do an MSc and you know, PhD and all of that. Because I was also scared of just sitting by a microscope and looking at a bacteria or a fungi's metabolism all my life, you know, by just by myself. So I dropped a year and went into my MBA and got through a part of that. And I, I really liked advertising. I liked communications. I liked, you know, really speaking with people. And I realized that maybe that was the reason why I didn't want to sit by a microscope in the lab and wanted to just probably go out. And yeah, during one of the, even after post my BA, I was doing a lot of forms work for either different charities, different, you know, little freelance projects with, 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 you know, big FMCG brands. I think during one of those shoots, I was 23, not a lot of sense. And I would want to believe not a lot of sense now, but <laughs> Uh, I was shooting for a film, cutting a very long story short. I met this 36-year-old young mother, the same age that I am now today. And she had eight daughters. She had seven daughters. She was pregnant with her eighth child. And as we were sitting and having the chat, I was in an angry mode. I think angry mode, angry mood, whatever you may call it. Because something had happened at the shoot and I was just angry about how people were insensitive, people were apathetic to each other. And I was in that window of, of my head. And that's when I met this mother who was sending one of her girls to a brothel so that, or an unorganized brothel, so that she could feed the rest of the daughters she had. And this kid that I talk of was seven and a half, eight years old herself. Can I remember having a chat with this mother who's another barely 11 month old daughter was, you know, sitting at the end of that pot by, as they say, Ruby. And she was sitting, that little 11-month-old kid was sitting there and with a broken pencil, breaking, I still remember that so clearly as if it was just yesterday, that she was breaking that, you know, a piece of cow dung and literally cow shit for the lack of a better, more fancier word because there is, there is nothing fancy about this incident. So let me just put it the way it was. And she was breaking it down with that broken pencil and eating it because she was hungry. And I asked the mother, you know, and this is really seven and a half years to bring this child. And that was the day I think a family got full cream milk, full cream milk chai for, for me. They had no business to feed me a full cream milk chai, which was certainly a certain cost to them. And I was yes. a stranger. And uh, this child is offering me chai and starts sipping chai. And that's when I'm having this conversation with the mother. This is an urban slum cluster in Delhi that I talk of. 
This is not Odisha. This is not Jharkhand. This is Delhi, the capital city of the country that I speak of. And this, this kid was not walking right, right? This kid was limping and she, she came with Jai. So I asked the mother, has she fallen down by saying, is she, is she okay? And this mother tells me as a matter of fact way that don't worry, every three, four, and three days, something man comes, some gentleman comes and takes her away. And don't worry. And before I could understand what she's saying, takes her away and all of that. She says, don't worry. We give her a pack of condoms to go along so that she's taken care of. And I think at 23, you don't start off to start off an NGO because he's something you spoke to, you heard of. But I think at that moment, I couldn't think of anything else but taking care of that kid and making sure that if nothing else goes to a school and doesn't go to a brothel. And I think in, in over the course of last 10 odd years, 12, 13 odd years, I realized the difference between child trafficking and child transactional sex. I never knew this difference existed. Trafficking means there is a source and destination. Transactional sex is the child will be taken away. And that is rampant in, in poverty-stricken households everywhere in the world, as I learn now, that this child will be taken away for two, three, four hours of sex work or whatever you may call it. And will come back with two of you know, rice, one kg of atta, two kg potatoes in return. Something that I had almost forgotten in the last few years, almost a decade of work. During COVID, it all surfaced back in, into our faces. That's, that's how Rotsahan started. Along the way, I realized I do not understand law. So I got to get out the little, you know, diploma degree law. I realized I didn't understand parts of how to run country, a charity, which is an altogether a different ballgame. I was an advertising person who loved making ads, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Because even now I, I sit on the team and say, hey, how do I, you know, get the algorithms on Instagram, right? Because that, that was my passion, right? And then along the way, I think my, my interest areas also grew along a lot of policy, a lot of big, you know, change. But it's still the stories that matter, that, that are everything for me. That's such a moving story. And I think sometimes growing up in a big city, if you come from a certain type of social background, we can think that the life we live is a reality. And then every now and then we come face to face with the reality of others that is so different from us. And I, I lived in Delhi for a few years. At, at the time I lived in South Delhi and, and you can kind of be in this little bubble and say, okay, all of Delhi is like this. When we, we don't even have a glimpse of, of other communities, other people might be going through. These are just different worlds, you know, yeah. they're existing in silos and nobody from one, you know, has a peek into the other or maybe they do, but they don't talk about it. But these are just different worlds in the same world. What surprises me is that they're so aloof that their problems seem so aloof. I find there's more connection than disconnection, but it's all apatheticness and disconnection that I do end up seeing. I, again, might sound cynical, but I've seen so much of reality on the ground that I don't know how to be a crazy optimist anymore. I don't. How did you, how did you get started? There you were, 23-year-old Sona, passion for advertising. Probably in, in the context of today, you'd have been the influencer of 2010. How did you make the switch and say, I, I came across this experience. It clearly impacted you significantly. What were your steps from there? not only to understand the problem, but also then begin to work towards it. Uh, say that, that you want to make a difference and actually go about doing that. As, as far as the steps of the problem, David, are concerned, I think in the first few years, not just the first few months, the first three, four, five years, you barely understand and make sense what you were doing, right? I remember the job when we started off, first eight months, we didn't want to start a school because there were enough schools, the kids and, you know, decent quality schools in Delhi, government schools that I talk about. Not the best, but mm -hmm. certainly, you know, decent enough, some of them. And now 
you know, some a lot, lot many changes are happening in schools that become even better than the way they were. But when you start, for me, it was always about bringing the girls from points of brothels or points or any sorts of child abuse, you know, at a time now we are, we are kind of almost, we, we, people think that most of the girls that we work with have gone through a lot of, you know, trauma, sexual abuse, which is not true. Any sort of trauma which comes from sexual abuse or physical violence or loss of a parent or the fact that you've just been in a poverty-stricken household, hungry, the sense of lack that comes in a, in, in a child's mind instead of a sense of abundance, right? All of that leads to adverse childhood experiences. I, I keep telling people, right, like I never had a B plan, neither did I have a plan B. And that's the entire reason why Protsahan worked. Otherwise, either I would have run away or my team would have run away. If we were looking at some balance sheet or some Excel sheet numbers or growth numbers and pivot tables. Of course, after 30 years, all of this, you know, just does get embedded because you're looking at growth, you're looking at numbers and yeah. finances. But there has to be a balance. And if any day I have to choose scale versus empathy, I'm, it's, it's, an, it's a non-brainer for me. I'm going to pick empathy and quality of work rather than numbers. And I think this, this rush, something in the beginning, I think I knew what I don't want to do. What I don't want Protsahan to be rather than being clear about what I wanted to do or what I really wanted the organization to be. I didn't have the steps clear. I just knew what I don't want this organization to be. I think in the beginning when we started, I just wanted to be a slow, patient organization. If that makes sense, I, I would sound funny and stupid. I think in this mad rush to numbers and scale today, and numbers, scale is required, right? The magnitude of the problem that we are working with scale is crazy imperative. But is it the only way to understand the number line that scale? Can't scale be depth, you know, can't scale be the depth of change in one life. And then that and heart model that, that you spoke about, David, is all about that. If I was putting solar cookers on in places where there's a lot of sun and, you know, all of that, I could look at my stuff or my success or whatever organization success in terms of the number of solar panels I installed, right? That is fine too. But we are working with survivors. We are working at Protsahan with, with a lot of trauma that they've gone through. We are working in spaces where the child is sitting in the class and she's not concentrating. Why? Because the father has killed the mother, right? We are working in spaces with some of the most criminal and violent backgrounds that these children have become so enmeshed in that they don't see an identity outside of this crime and violence. And they have invited it amongst themselves. And we are coming here and telling them, or, you know, teaching them a way to see the light in themselves. Like, I can't plot that on an Excel sheet. I will only have stories to tell. In the beginning, I just knew what I wouldn't do. Today, I probably have maybe terms for it or words for it that we are a much more patient organization. We, you know, look at depth of scale rather than, you know, the number line that scale. We are more important to look at the well-being of my, for example, one of the very core uh, components of our team is the child protection workers, the child protection officers on the ground. A lot of, for the first few years, we would look at it. I would, you know, in my capacity, look at children, children. After a few years or in the last three, four years, I'm only looking at the well-being of my team and very specifically child protection officers, that if they are taken care of, you know, caring for the caregivers, as we say, and, and that too, in, in a space that we say freedom within a framework. So of course there is a framework now. Of course there are systems and SOPs now, but there is a lot of freedom to have this choice of picking up empathy on a day before an Excel sheet, you know, and nobody will question you. The decision-making should not come from the ED and the CEO and the managers or whatever you may call us. 
right? The decision making has to come from the level of a child protection officer who's working with the child. Does she have the, the way to make that decision? I think well-being pieces. These are the pieces that, you know, concern me today. These are the pieces that I think I didn't have the vocabulary for it, but concerned me 10 years back too. And as far as the very strict steps, I didn't have the steps, David. I think very organically, we, we became who we were because we let go of things that we were like, we are not going to be doing this because, just because the world expects us or the donors expect us because this is a space, social entrepreneurship or any sort of any entrepreneurship is a space where it's very easy to be led by the vision of people who are funding you. It's like a chicken and egg thing, right? Like if you don't have the resources or money, you can't do stuff. But just because I'm getting the resources and we, we have said a no to so many, you know, donors because they wanted us to do something that we said, hey, why don't you reach out to that organization? Because they said do that the best. We work with the trauma of a child and make sure she's healed. Right? I understand healing. I don't understand pivot table. So we have let go of a lot of money in the beginning, five, six, fifth, sixth year, I think. But now we are at a space where we know what we are never going to do. We're still figuring out a lot of the steps. But I think we are now also in a space where we are very sure who we are as people. Talk to us a little bit about that journey, because especially if, if you could tell us about Putsahan, probably from the perspective of a child protection officer, what, what, what does that look like? What, what is really, I wouldn't say the activity, but the operation and the heart behind Putsahan in that aspect. We'll go for the change lives. So I, I love numbers, but I love stories better. If you, if you could just tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing in Delhi and, and across the country. I will share numbers with you because I also, there's a lot of people who might be listening to this. It, it's not an either or, right? right. It is an act, you know, one of those logic gates that we've studied as a kid. And I think the and comes from the fact that what are your core value systems as you set up whatever you want to set up, right? You can, be, you can, you can set up an industry. You can set up whatever you want to. It doesn't have to be only the non-profit space, right? Setting up anything, birthing anything requires you to have a value system. And I think this value system will test you beyond, will stretch your limits to a point where you will only end up finding who you are. And all of these things will end up as in Hindi, we say bahani. They will become excuses to say, hey, okay, you ended up doing this when you were on this planet, right? But I think the, the end journey will really be to figure out who exactly you were because your limits were stretched beyond comprehension. And when we started with this one kid who we were trying to rescue from a point of, you know, going to a brothel to, you know, instead go to a school, to today we've rescued about 1,128 girls. And for a lot of people that might seem like, oh, 12, 13 years, 1,100 girls rescued, what of them? right? It's, it's not, you, mean, you should be talking in millions of numbers. No, I don't care about millions of numbers. These 1128 plus girls, they're now either filmmakers and photographers and, you know, Disney artists and this artist and that artist or have jobs in some capitalist, you know, private companies of the world as well. When they're looking at data, they're looking at people management and all of that. And in all of this journey, they have healed themselves. They have, it's not just, you know, getting a great education. So maybe she was rescued from a point of begging, not just, like I said, not all kids from, have been rescued from points of sexual abuse. Some of them have been rescued from points of begging. Some of them have been rescued from a point of just, you know, the red light with no parents, parents dead by her side. Some of them have been rescued from points of rat picking or child labor and crazy situations like that. When we say rescue, when I say Prothahan's value system, our rescue is not the proverbial rescue that people have understood of the NGO sector. Right? 
footage will come, silence will come, somebody will be clothed with a black mask, or there'll be a lot of rush around it and the media. No, that's exactly not the way to do it. The way you need to do or move a child or you know, do a rescue mission or what I don't know, these big words they put. It's about a lot of PFA or psychological first aid counseling. These are WHO guidelines prescribed. It's a written quite a bit about it. The process of PSA or psychological first aid counseling has to be patient, has to be transitional, really transformational for the family. The other rates and you know, sex trafficking rates, et cetera, when they are conducted. After three months, you will find the child back again at the brothel after the police and the media and the hoopa has ended, right? But if there is counseling, if there is financial support for the family, if there is scholarship support or any sort of direct cash transfer support to the family, direct cash transfers also require you to trust the process. It requires you to trust the system, the family, that you know, if it was never a choice for them to throw their child into, you know, some sort of uh, the marketplace at that three, at six, right? So our sorts of rescues are a very silent processes. Only the child and the child protection officer and the family knows that it's a rescue really happening. We don't make too much of tamasha in the community. It will be so silent. It will be so supportive of the family that within six months, the idea is the family gets the child to a school. We, we keep supporting. We keep supporting. It does take a few months. It's not a one-day process. And that, that's how you know, the child protection officer also starts off their life, their day, starting off with moving the child from a point of a begging point, red light, whatever you call it, it may be, to a point of a school. That's the first step that the child protection officer does. The quick second being, we have a lot of centers now. We, these are trauma-informed spaces where every child, if you enter a trauma-informed space or a girl empowerment center, as we call it, these are spaces within those dark communities, within those urban slums, where you enter and you will find Lots of toys, lots of color on the walls, crazy amount of color on the walls. It's like this fairy land sort of a space. And a lot of people, you know, sometimes we ask our donors and PSRs that you want to set up these spaces and they're like, you know, just get some books. They're like, yeah, we're going to get some books, but the kid needs to feel loved. How did we forget that the child needs a loving caregiver? How did we forget that the child just needs color and just, just color around it? So I remember when I used to be, I've moved now into a lot of management side of the organization. But when I used to be child protection officer on the ground, I remember this little nine-year-old girl at that point in time, very happy, jumpy kid. And one day she comes to the center and that, those were the times in all six days I used to be on the, on the ground. We didn't have an office that time. And this kid's very happy, jumpy. And one day she comes and she's all forlorn and sad and not talking, completely in a silo. And I remember I was very, very busy that day. There were too many people coming and I was in a rush, but I didn't notice this kid. Second day happened. And the third day, I reached up to her because I thought maybe one day she's not talking. You know? I was also busy, I think. And the second or third day, I did reach up to this kid and I asked, Kya hua? what happened? And, you know, she just like immediately starts crying as if waiting for somebody to just ask her, are you okay? What happened? Yeah. And we took a home visit. I went to her place. And that's when the story really unfolded. She tells me, or the mother really tells me, what had happened was the father of this child had abandoned the family. The mother was pregnant when the father abandoned them. And she just had given birth. This little nine-ish-year-old kid had just helped her mother deliver a baby. She was helping in that entire birth, birthing process, the partition process. And she had cut the umbilical cord. She had seen blood and mucus in her hands. 
And she was terrified of, you know, hey, this is where babies come from. Now, a lot of people might think of it as everyday thing babies come from, you know, I mean, it's, it's a normal question. This nine-year-old had no idea. The mother was howling. The father had abandoned the family. And the entire onus of being the doula or the nurse or to be the protector of this baby until the mother, because after the birthing process happened, the mother was a little unconscious for a, for a bit, for a few hours. And this child said that they killed her mother. And the whole process of it, right? And trauma is not what happens to you. Trauma is how your mind and your body react to what happened to you. So for me, I, I might look at this process or be a part of this process. So the same incident might happen with me. And I say, yes, I'm resilient to all those fancy words and you know, nothing happened. But for the same incident, same everything happens to somebody else and their body reacts to it in a very different way. And all we really had to do to make sure that this child came back to a happy, junky self was to bring rainbow classes and some rainbow workshops and color and, you know, hoo-ha back in the classroom and make her feel loved. And within three, four days, she was back again to be novel. And of course, some counseling and, you know, all of that involved. And I think with every child protection officer at Kodza, now we have a team of 16 such officers. And beyond a point, we don't even want to grow. You know, if somebody says, you know, what if you have a lot of money? This question comes up in the, the social sector space, right? All the time. What if we give you like, millions and whatever dollars or crores of rupees, would you be able to set up 5,000 such loving care? No, it's not my job. It's your job. I've given you the model, you do it. You know, why should this lesson, whatever should be of by me and Protahan alone, that I will teach you how to do it. You go ahead and do it. And I think this, this conversation, if you've done stuff for 2,000, do it for 5,000. If you've done it for 5,000, do it for 15 million. It's, it's not just my responsibility. And I think some social entrepreneurs are, you know, and I see people at 60, I see people at 50, I see people at 75 in the social entrepreneurship space and they think they have failed. They've not failed. You have given them this number crunch to feel successful and you've not given them a breather, you know, and I don't want to end up my life like that. We have worked with, you know, so 1128 girls have been rescued from different such points and about 81,000 girls that we are reaching in a point of, you know, different government schools, different spaces, working with juvenile justice boards who are working on such cases or more disabled cases. And we tell them how to go about, you know, supporting the child. We work with child rescue to a lot of trainings on psychological trauma. How do you handle these pieces? So we are now creating that the cardinal of caregiving officers and we are bringing that loving and empathy and they have no understanding of what childhood trauma, the implications of it could look like, right? And we are now training with little cardinal of seats in the system everywhere that Rotsahan ideally should not exist after 10 years. Ideally, it should not have existed at all, right? If everything worked in whatever the way it should have, would have to be worked. But after 10, 15 years, I really want the organization to exist. I would probably want these, you know, seeds that we have thrown around to blossom and then take the journey. So child protection officer is just that work. Being the loving caregiver. Now, of course, some data entries in the app and, you know, taking sure that the, how many children, what are the trends, some of these data entries and, you know, these processes. And you will be probably surprised, David, to know that the first child protection officer who started off for the first few that kind of came in the first couple of years, they're still with us. It's been 10 years for some, it's been 11 for some, it's been eight years for some, and they're still there. And we've been able to give them, not just because they're there for the love and the passion and beauty and the honesty and the authenticity they bring to the whole process, not just the end start and the end point, but the whole process of it. It's exhausting, it's, it's exhausting right, for any caregiver in any capacity. And we've been able to give them this growth trajectory, this financial growth trajectory as, as they grow in experience. 
these were all people from the community. Now they speak English better than I do. They, they understand systems and datas and apps and Canva, you know, they make these fancy charts on Canva that have no understanding how. <laughs> they have grown as professionals. You know, they have evolved to a point. I think it's humanly probably impossible as whatever little that of life that I've seen. I've seen them push their boundaries, right? To grow and pay that light for that child. And they've passed on that light to that child and are ending up passing on that light. So I think that's what the CPO at Protsan does. So now you just report a point and I want to go down that rabbit hole because I think it'll just, let's, let's see where we land up. But I want to talk about the journey of a social entrepreneur and the, the journey of someone in the social sector. Here's the thing that I've noticed from talking to Sobhdi Ashoka fellows is because they've mapped out a problem so well and, and they've really spent time studying the system and the root of why certain problems exist. The downside of that sometimes is that the whole weight of that social problem suddenly becomes their responsibility and is on their shoulders. And I, I think that could sometimes be the burnout factor where when we talk about systems change, it ideally should lead to the system changing so that the problem does exist. But I, I feel like sometimes in the entrepreneurship space is because we've dedicated our life towards solving a problem. We kind of become the savior of, it's kind of like a savior mentality without the entire weight of that problem rests on our shoulders. And we just see terrible burnout. The inability to ability to see joy in life. We've reached 100,000, but there's still 10 million to go. We're never going to make that difference said that we, the, the lasting difference in the world. And, and that negative self-talk can, can come and I know this is real. I know this is raw, but would you be willing to talk about just your journey and observations in this? How do you build contentment through the journey rather than saying, okay, I will be happy when everything is solved and, and, and then I will hang up my hat. Sorry, I know that's a heavy question, but let's go for it. I think it's, it's, a, it's this conversation is still easy. Yeah. Uh, being on the ground is what is difficult and I still haven't come to terms with, you know, after a tough day on the ground, to come back home and just have my chai and tea. My husband is a great hook. As we sit together, sip our coffees and chai, I sometimes don't have the words to tell, you know, him as my best friend. I don't have the words to tell him what, how the day was. I, I don't know how to articulate it sometimes. And we'll just sit by each other and just, just that. So that's, that's the tough piece. This conversation is still easy. So I think, I don't know about the journey of the social entrepreneur or whatever. It's just been 12, 13 years for me. But I think this burnout is real. I would want to call the burnout compassion fatigue. Some people call it vicarious trauma. I think every social entrepreneur, for worse their soul, they will go through this. There is no going a cut, you know, to guard to kind of get a law, like, you know, to kind of save yourself from going. You will go through that. You have to hop the puddle or get into the puddle. There's no like going around it. And only once you're in it or only once you've hopped in it and say, oh, you know, I, I think that's when you realize that it's, it's, it's a journey for sure. These puddles will be there. I think it's this this very fine balance or imbalance because if you have started something of course your head mind body soul you know sweat everything in it and you will forget to sleep you will forget to eat you know you would want to solve the problem the way it is or in our case you know, save the child save the child there are times in the beginning when I was not able to save the child and I couldn't sleep for days and I felt that I did so much and we did so much and we couldn't work and I think the illusion to control and every time I'm in some sort of a quagmire of decision-making or whatever, I think Kung Fu Panda really comes to rest. This illusion of control is, is the 
silliest thing that we as humans can be it relationships. This is ending up like some love guru advice. Be it relationships, life, be it when we lose our parents, when we lose, if at all, you know, for, for those who have kids, if at all, how the kids' lives will be mapped out. That this illusion to feel that we, we are the controllers, we are the, I would even go a step further to say that, oh, we are the only the doers. It's a lot of it, maybe 70, 60 percent. Yeah, we are the ones doing it. We are the ones probably thinking through pieces. And but 30, 40 percent, I think some part of it is started out. Some part of it is beyond the illusion of control because one or two or five people within themselves can look at, hey, I'll, I'll teach you this decision, logical and rational about it and all of that. But when a, when a group of two million people are looking at it, then it's not. Then it's 2 million people. And then even then the stuff goes beyond our control, right? Climate change, right? Yeah. So consciously thought about it. But is that the problem we've landed ourselves up in as humans? Yeah. You know, do we have quick solutions for it? No, right? Will, will the nature deal with it? Oh, much better than you and I think and probably wipe out half of us. But I don't know, right? But I think this journey of compassion fatigue is real. This journey of feeling the imposter syndrome or failure is real. I was reading this very beautiful article that said that people who do feel imposter syndrome are really the people who self-reflect a lot. People who do not feel the imposter syndrome at all are really the most unlikable ones or people who think that they are the arrogant one, you know, who think they can like, do everything in the world and change everything. And I think a little bit of imposter syndrome, a little bit of compassion, a little bit of burnout is okay. It has to be balanced out. If you've not gone through that, you would not know how to fix it. You will not be sitting far away to figure out how to fix that problem until you, you know, come face to face with it. But once you have encountered it, I think it's stupid then to not tackle it. This entire social entrepreneurship or whatever entrepreneurship is, is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's not this, you know, Iron Man thing that, you know, has to be done in two days or three days. It's, it's a marathon, really, right? And taking care of yourself is a part of doing good work. Taking care of yourself and your people and your family. I remember when I was writing the Ashoka home, you know, I like, I was sure these guys will not take me, you know, I've been like crazy brutal in my answers. And one of the things I wrote was, you know, I, I need to take care of my people and, and, you know, my, my mother and my father and myself. And I just need to take care of things. I mean, if I don't exist, you know, I'm not saying this work will not exist. Somebody else would probably do a much better job of, of this, all of all of this. But the idea that I don't even want Protsahan to scale. I want the, you know, the idea of Protsahan to scale. And a lot of people look at me and they're like, oh, you know, such arrogance. I'm like, no, this is not arrogance. I don't want to start. So we are five centers open. I don't want to start the sixth center, you know. So one of my child protection officers who heads a lot of these programs on the ground, she comes to me and says, now, this area, mate, this particular area, we have solved you know, most part of the problem in the next two years, let's shut the center down because we don't want to start the sixth center now. Let's shut one down and start another one in that other area. And yeah, that sounds like that. How many NGOs or how many people would be okay to let that importance to self that, oh, we are no longer needed here. But hey, bloody hell, that's the point. You should do something so well that you no longer need it and the community and the resilience of the community takes over. Right? They, they learn to solve the problem or they get connected to the system or the linkages or whatever that you're doing ends up being the solution for them. You can't be the messiah or think that, you know, some sort of savior complex to Africa ke jungle mein ja ke, to me the white person will solve the problem. 
you need to also let go of this onus of control, this onus of, you know, realizing that only you are the problem solver. You've given this idea to the world, now back off, right? So for example, this heart model and this entire piece that has come together, we very simply say heart or H-E-A-R-T, it is healing. In any education system, you have to think of healing. And we've kind of now come up with dimensions how to even measure that healing, how would that look like, right? So H for healing, E for education, which is a non-negotiable, but A for art-based life skills, because art and creativity is something that every child who's been violated or every, every child who's undergoing any sort of adversity or trauma, art heals. And art can be drums, art can be painting, art can be craft, art can be filmmaking, art can be dance movement therapy or sports. Art can be anything creative for the child's brain to get connected to. R in the heart is recovery from trauma because R is a lot of counseling, a lot of caregiving, that that thing that, you know, it was not your fault and I trust you and I believe you and let's make it work, work together, right? T is technology because again, you know, a lot of linkages to the government schemes, a lot of linkages to the system because again, child protection is not possible without social protection. So T, technology, because that helps scale that entire piece. And yeah, then heart comes together. The other day, just last night, I think 11 o'clock, I was responding to some email and they were like, hey, we want your, because you've done centers and all of that, we want you to, you know, use our model. And, you know, a lot of people again can come, and I think as a woman in, in this space who's very self-assured, I always get to hear this a lot that you think you know things too much. No, I just know what I'm doing, right? And I'm, I'm bloody sure of a lot of things that I'm doing and probably 20% that I'm making a mess of. But I will say all of that 80 plus 20 out loud. I'm not scared, right? And I told them that, you know, honestly, we don't have to use your model. What really needs to be done is for you to bring healing and reporting of child sexual abuse cases in your classrooms. This is the model that you guys need to apply. So let's have a chat about it, right? And I think this, this understanding of classroom education should be all about English and math outcomes. Kerala, this latest National Family Health Survey, they have come up with numbers which are mind-boggling, right? Just six, eight months back that has the highest literacy rates in the country. Gender violence is at the peak in the state compared to even Haryana's and Uttar Pradesh's of the world, right? So what kind of literacy and education and math outcomes and English outcomes and whatever outcomes we're talking about, if there is violence, if there is no healing, if people don't know how to be with each other, right? So I think this, this world really needs a lot of heart or healing or just being kind. And the ones who are the UN SDGs, I see these fancy white papers, one little Google search and you have 10,000 white papers on any damn topic. So more than the research, I think we also need, at least in the development space, we also need implementation of that research or that evidence that's not happening the way it's supposed to happen. Any, any closing thoughts or final thoughts before, before we close? Anything you'd like to share with the audience? I would just say that just do what makes you makes your heart sink if it's if it's about just having a chota's a job in you know like a small little job in a small little quiet place if that makes your heart sing feeding the dogs in that place makes your heart sing do that you know a lot of people feel this this life is too small i think this life is too long too long especially if you've been on the ground or if you've seen a lot of black dark stuff where it's the darkness will get to you because you're constantly in the darkness and there is no denying it and that little bit of darkness, when it comes to you, it's all right. Your light should be enough. You should be so sure of your value system that, yeah, you can take a little bit of darkness and you'll be okay with it. You'll probably end up 
doing more of this work, you'll probably end up creating more connections and let go of this illusion of control and just do only what makes your heart sing. The governance, compliance, the fundraising, these things end up being the easier pieces of the pie after five, six years. The toughest is how to stand with your value system and just do things that make you happy and not end up with a backache. Well said. Thank you so much, Sono, for coming on and sharing your journey with us. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this episode inspired you on your change maker journey. Together, we are creating a world where everyone can be a change maker.